0: My name is Jose Alvarez, I teach at New York University School of Law, and this is a lecture on the human right of property. The idea that there is a human right to the protection of property under international law is controversial, and has always been so. According to a leading U.S. scholar, John Sprankling, who has written a book on the international law of property, if one were to ask international lawyers the question, does the right to property exist under international law? Their collective answer is likely to be no. The leading European scholar, Theo Van Banning, the author of The Human Right to Property, puts it more diplomatically. The human right to property is complex, he says, and controversial and is only protected, quote, only to a limited extent, close quote. But both Sprankling and Van Banning go on to point out, as I do in this lecture, that as a matter of positive black letter law, nearly all states in the world today recognize a right to property rights protection for all human beings within their territory including their own citizens as well as foreign nationals. This lecture seeks to explain the disjuncture between on the one hand the many treaties recognizing a right to the protection of various forms of tangible and intangible property and on the other hand the deep-seated impression that such a right does not exist or that even if it does it does not merit serious attention by those struggling to protect quote, more genuine, close quote, human rights. As the brief bibliography that accompanies this lecture states, this is a vast topic with many tantalizing aspects that I cannot address here. The right to property can be examined historically. It played a key role in the French, American, Russian, or Mexican revolutions, for example. It is essential to understanding the competing lines of U.N. General Assembly resolutions supported by the West versus the rest in the 1970s and efforts to establish a new international economic order, or the NEO. One could use property rights to explore distinct legal traditions, such as civil law or the common law. As Van Banning indicates, one can explore the ways different religious traditions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, and Islam, recognize property. Or its role in distinguishing different generations of human rights, or to delineate distinctions between individual rights, defined as protections against the abuse of state power, versus what some would call social rights, demanding positive or affirmative material benefits to be provided by states. Property rights are essential to making sense of debates over particular models for economic development imposed by international financial institutions, like the IMF. One could, as national property rights scholars do routinely, explore the extent to which international law recognizes distinct rights to acquire, to use, to destroy, to exclude, to transfer, or to inherit property. There is considerable work that could be done to explore the extent to which international law recognizes these particular sticks of property rights, or to consider whether customary international law recognizes a more general, if vague, right to a core minimum bundle of rights, to say one's home or only to one's basic personal possessions. And today, national and international law faces an immediate challenge in redefining what the right of ownership means with respect to non-physical goods, such as digital material. Now, these are all good reasons why the human right of property is worthy of more attention than it now gets from international lawyers. There are other good reasons for paying at least as much attention to how states abuse this right as they do other rights. Property rights have historically played a huge role in defining the characteristics associated with the national rule of law. Property rights, including their registration, have been essential to making law accessible, intelligible, clear, and predictable. Disputes over property are the quintessential type of dispute deemed susceptible to the application of law fairly and equally applied by courts. The resolution of property disputes have served as a useful template for understanding the difference between the lawful exercise of delegated power and its arbitrary deployment. The role of property rights in the rule of law and the prospects it has for defining what we might mean by the international rule of law make them important. Indeed, it is impossible to understand contemporary international law or the role of regional or multilateral international institutions from the European Union to the OAS to international financial institutions like the World Bank it is impossible to understand them without understanding how or why international law protects property. Whether or not one is inclined to believe that a human right to property protection ought to exist, that possibility cannot be ignored by anyone, least of all human rights advocates. But while this lecture tees up these fascinating questions, they are, last not my focus in my limited time. Here I'm addressing only three things. First, why human right of property exists, at least as matter of treaty law. Second, what the many treaties that establish such a right seek to achieve in broad terms. And third, why the property rights they establish can properly be considered human rights. At the outset, let me emphasize that, as the title of this lecture indicates, my subject is the human right of property and not necessarily or only the right to private property. And I'm also talking about the human right to some forms of property access or protection, including to communal property and access to state-owned property. I'm also addressing the rights of human beings and not legal entities such as corporations, even though much of international law protects companies too. Please note as well that the human right that I am addressing is the right of, in the sense of relating to property, and not necessarily the right to a specific item of property or a piece of land, even though a number of international legal instruments misleadingly refer to the right to property. So question one, does a human right of property exist? Well, those listening to this lecture ought to have on hand my my table of 35 significant instruments recognizing property protections in different contexts in international law. As is clear from this table of 35 instruments, states have adhered to a wide number of legally binding agreements, starting as early as 1883 with the Berne Convention for the protection of industrial property and extending to the present day with the ASEAN Human Rights Declaration of 2012. All of these recognize an individual's right to the protection of his or her property. As the last column in this table indicates, which indicates their beneficiaries, all of these instruments confer rights on human beings, either generally, starting with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, recognizing the rights of everyone, see item five to items 6, 20, 21, 24, and 31, or to more specific categories of persons, such as women in the CEDAW convention, item 23, prisoners, item 13, or the disabled, that's the 2006 convention, which is at item 34, or only a nation's own citizens. See the Arab Charter on Human Rights at item 30. My table of significant instruments, treaties, and soft law declarations is, in one sense, conservative. I've only included those texts that specifically include the word property in their protections. I have not included, for example, the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which famously does not include property rights within its terms, even if some might see the rights that it does have to food, to shelter. Or to health as forms of property. But my table is broad in another sense. It includes international instruments that extend some kind of property right to human beings, even if the instrument, such as the Berne Convention protecting literary and artistic works would not ordinarily be characterized as a human rights text. My table also includes a few instruments, like protocol one of the European Convention of Human Rights, which protect both individuals and other legal persons, including including corporations, and therefore goes beyond protecting human beings. My table also includes a few instruments that anticipate the restitution of specific property as a remedy, along with other possibilities, such as the indigenous people's rights to have access to farm and graze on particular sacred lands. Of the 35 instruments on that table, 21 of them, as is usually clear by their titles, are well-established human rights instruments. The human rights status of the other 14 is far more controversial. This is in part because, as the International Court of Justice's Avena rulings, finding that the US violated the Vienna Convention on consular relations, suggest, it is not always clear when a treaty that is not designated as a human rights treaty can be said to confer or recognize a human right on behalf of individuals. If the test is whether a treaty formally confers entitlements on human beings, all 35 items on my table qualify. And many others that do not include property rights, such as the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations, would also qualify as a human rights instrument. If the question is whether an international text provides an individual with a right to an adjudicative remedy, such as access to present a claim before an international committee of experts, an arbitral body, a national, or an international court. If that's the test, then only a smaller number of these instruments would be considered human rights instruments. But by that standard, some of the 15 instruments that are not generally considered human rights texts, such as those involving intellectual property, but which under national law permit individuals to have access to national courts for a remedy, by that standard, they would qualify as human rights instruments. On the other hand, if a genuine human rights instrument requires access to a legally binding international remedy, such as damages, that cannot be superseded by the actions of a government without violating international law, relatively few of these instruments would qualify. If that were the standard for a genuine human rights treaty, perhaps only regional human rights instruments that grant access to human rights courts capable of issuing a legally binding judgment would satisfy that very high hurdle. Debates over what a human rights treaty is helps to explain why my short table is not swamped with over 3,000 International Investment Agreements, or IIAs, that now exist between pairs of states or within regions such as free trade agreements. Human rights advocates would be aghast by the suggestion that these vehicles for protecting foreign investors from their respective state parties, agreements that provide aid and comfort to the least advantaged among us, namely multilateral corporations, that these treaties should be seen as protecting human rights. But that contention cannot be easily dismissed some of the rights provided to alien investors under international investment agreements, which are usually extended to individuals or shareholders and not just companies, such as the rights to the minimum standard of treatment or prohibitions on denials of justice. These rights are precursors to rights that were established for all persons in the wake of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. IIAs and regional human rights treaties Like the European Convention for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, the ECHR, both contain rights to fair process, to non-arbitrary treatment, and to access to justice. Indeed, a study that I have conducted of all publicly available investor-state arbitral awards suggests that as many as 20% of them make at least one reference to the most developed human rights case law that we have namely that under the European Court of Human Rights at at Strasbourg. But even if the definition of a human rights treaty turns more on the procedural rights that it provides than about the substantive rights that it confers, this does not make it easier to say that IIAs, those international investment agreements, that have nothing to do with human rights. International investment agreements provide access to an international adjudicative remedy, that is at least as effective as those established under regional human rights treaties. The disagreement over how to classify IIAs turns on the nature of the rights they confer. It is not clear whether these international investment agreements as a group or individually confer rights only as between their state parties and therefore grant individual investors rights that are a conditional form of diplomatic espousal that states can waive at any time or whether instead they actually grant rights directly on their investor beneficiaries, as do regional human rights instruments. My table recognizes these uncertainties of classification through a very awkward compromise. It lists, at item 27, only one such international investment agreement, the 1994 North American Free Trade Agreements, called the NAFTA, Chapter 11 on investment. I do that as a placeholder for the thousands of bilateral or regional treaties that protect the property rights of individual investors as well as their companies and give them access to an international forum to enforce them, namely arbitration. I leave to others to decide whether at least some cases that are now being brought to investor state arbitration or that might be brought to international investment courts that are now being established under some investment agreements concluded by the EU, I leave to others whether they should be seen as human rights cases. The second column in my table indicates the number of current state parties to these instruments. It shows that the numbers of ratifications for some of these treaties approaches universality. See, for example, the numbers of parties exceeding 170 to the Paris Convention on Industrial Property at item one, the Berne Convention, Item 2, the 4th Geneva Convention at Item 7, the CERD, Item 19, or CEDAW at Item 23. Some of the regional treaties listed have also achieved nearly universal participation within their respective regions. This is true for the American Declaration on the Rights and Duties of Man, Item 6, and Protocol 1 to the European Convention on Human Rights at Item 10 or the European Social Charter at item 15. Of course, even those instruments that bind only a handful of states, such as the NAFTA, which is applicable only to Canada, the United States, and Mexico, constitute international legal obligations for those state parties. As my table indicates, international property rights, whether we classify them as human rights or not, blur distinctions between the public and private sides of international law. While these are all instruments of public international law, they sometimes intrude on the rights of private parties within states, including family life, as is true of CEDAW. These treaties sometimes impose obligations on governments to respect limits on their own governmental powers, while also requiring them to establish legal mechanisms to make sure that the property rights being recognized are respected by private parties within their jurisdiction. The intellectual property rights conferred by a number of these instruments, for example, secure the rights of their property holders from infringement by other private parties. These treaties generally recognize that the rights to property that they grant to individuals include the right to exclude others from enjoying them. The table also indicates that international property rights exist within a number of distinct distinct sub-regimes of international law. Property rights should interest those who study intellectual property. See items 1, 2, 3, 16, 22, and 28 on my table. Those who want to look at diplomatic privileges and immunities, see item 17. Those who study international labor law, see items 8 and 18. Or regional human rights, see items 6, 15, 24, 30, 31, 33, and 35. International humanitarian law, items 4, 7, and 12. International criminal law, items 7, 12, 13, 21, and 29. And it should certainly interest those who want to study the rights of certain vulnerable groups. Namely, refugees, item 9, stateless persons, item 11, prisoners, item 13, indigenous peoples, 14 and 25, racial minorities, third, at item 19, women, item 23, and the disabled, item 34. The variety of regimes in which property rights play a role suggest yet another reason why the right of property is worthy of serious attention. The human right of property is characterized by intersectionality. It anticipates, even forces, a relationship with other parts of international law and with other kinds of human rights. As such, it is a good vehicle for deepening our understanding of international law generally. As Van Banning points out, the right to property intersects with the right to equality, to justice, to freedom of opinion and expression. To, read, to personal integrity, to freedom of movement, to privacy, to work, to health, to education rights, to culture, to the right to participate in government. One's right to worship is hampered, for example, if a religious order cannot establish places of worship. Access to culture is limited if artists cannot own what they create. The ability to criticize a government alone or with others can be seriously undermined if newspapers, television stations, or digital media outlets are owned or controlled solely by the state. Does this impressive table of instruments suggest, then, that a human right of, if not to, property now exists as a matter of customary national law, or because it is a general principle of law among nations? That's a complicated question. Some, including the U.S. scholar John Sprankling that I mentioned, or my NYU colleague Joseph Weiler, who filed an expert opinion to this effect in a US federal court in a case that asked that question, some of those people would suggest that this is so. Many frame the question in terms of the status of the human right to property recognized in the Hortatory General Assembly Resolution containing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That declaration states everyone has the right to own property alone, as well as in association with others. No one shall be arbitrarily deprived of his property." Close quote at Article 17. Now has that mere General Assembly resolution, or it's Article 17 in particular, now become binding law through the practice of states, including changes to their national laws and constitutions, or otherwise as through their treaty practice? Has the Cold War divide that prevented the inclusion of something like Article 17 in the two international covenants, the ICCPR and the uh, IESCR, now been bridged by the turn toward property and market-based economies. Today, when some 95% of states guarantee the right to property under their national laws, most commonly in their national constitutions, some have argued that a right to property protection exists as a general principle of law, even if the parameters of that right, along with the definition of what is protected property, differ considerably among states. The customary international law basis for a right to property under international law could also draw support from the fact that, as Franklin has noted, 132 nations, more than two-thirds of them, are now parties to one binding regional human rights treaty either the American Convention, the ECHR, the African Charter, or the Arab Charter, that includes the right to property. Further, as my table indicates, all but two states, Palau and South Sudan, are parties to at least one multilateral treaty that prohibits discrimination with respect to property rights against one or more vulnerable groups, namely CEDAW, with 189 state parties, CERD, 178, migrant workers at 50 state parties, and the Disabilities Convention with 172 state parties. As a number of scholars have pointed out, the universal status for a right to property could also draw support from the fact that neo-era opposition to recognizing the property rights of aliens has withered amidst widespread ratifications of international investment agreements comparable to the NAFTA's Chapter 11. I leave to others to determine whether these arguments for a universal right of property are conclusive. Even though widespread treaty ratifications are often used as stand-ins or shortcuts for findings of custom, not everyone believes that such evidence supplies the necessary opinio juris to draw such conclusions. Not everyone agrees that the post-Cold War consensus to respect property rights reflected in all those constitutions, enjoys sufficiently clear common elements to be elevated to a genuine general principle of law. My own view for what it is worth is that even if a human right to property protection exists as a matter of universal custom or general principle of law, that conclusion would not support anything other than a primitive or rudimentary conception of the rights given differences among states about what constitutes protectable, private, state-owned, or communal property, and other differences among them about the property rights that are clear from the property rights treaties in my table, establishing a universal rule that would go beyond the exceedingly vague terms of Article 17 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that I just cited would be a formidable task. Such an achievement has eluded states with respect to a more narrow goal, namely enumerating the rights owed under customary law to alien property within one's jurisdiction. It explains why we have 3,000 IIAs with somewhat different contents and not a single multilateral agreement to protect the property of alien investors that is comparable to the WTO agreements governing trade in goods. Any global effort to agree on a single comprehensive right to property would produce a lowest common denominator solution, which, like the Universal Declaration's Article 17, would leave the parameters of the right, along with the definition of property owed protection, undefined and subject to considerable state discretion. A universal human right to property, as opposed to what we have, the piecemeal treaty by treaty, property rights regimes that are shown by my table, would need to be capacious enough to embrace a range of state laws and economic systems with widely different emphasis on reliance on the market. The end of the Cold War may have made states more amenable to private property rights, but it has not made them accept uniform rules defining the precise contours of such rights. Of course, a truly universal right to or of property would also need to be malleable enough to survive reservations That, to some of the treaties in my table. Those urging a universal right to property would also need to address the fact that at present, some states, like most of the countries of Asia, which have not acceded to a binding regional human rights treaty with such a right. Or even Switzerland, which has refused to accede to protocol one of the European Convention on Human Rights. Or the United States, which has not acceded to the American Convention on Human Rights or to most of the human rights treaties on my table. These states remain outside some of the most important property protecting regimes. What can be said? with more certainty is this. A human right of property exists even if it is only grounded in treaties and not universal custom or general principles. But if this is the state of positive law, why is there such resistance to a treaty-based human right of property among international lawyers, and especially human rights advocates? Why is the violation of the property rights included in at least those treaties that are designated as human rights agreements, why is that violation not the subject of more complaints by human rights NGOs? What is so troubling about a human right to property protection? And how do the instruments that include that right answer those objections? The so-called father of human rights, at least in the United States, the late professor Louis Henkin, would not have been surprised by the continued resistance to the idea of human right to property. Henkin was a revolutionary proponent of the view that ours was the, quote, age of rights in which every individual, quote, has legitimate claims upon his or her own own society, close quote, and that these claims were justified, not because these rights are necessary to achieve some common good, not because they are granted to us by the grace of a democratic government, but because they are moral entitlements owed to all of us as human beings. He argued that the age of rights forged in the cauldron of World War II's horrors, had turned states inside out. It was now everybody's business to look at how governments treat every person in their territory, from its own citizens to undocumented aliens. He argued that each of us have fundamental rights to human dignity and equal worth. In answering defenders of American exceptionalism and nationalists who were critical of international human rights, Henkin pointed out that these were equally American values. He reminded anyone who would listen that the inalienable rights that Thomas Jefferson invoked in the Universal Declaration of Independence were owed equally to all men and women, not only as a matter of national, but of international law. Henkin pointed to the inclusion of human rights in the UN Charter and other post-World War II developments as changing the very nature of sovereignty. Sovereignty which Henkin called the S-word, could no longer be a shield against governments that tortured political opponents or disappeared them into the night and fog, or gulags. Henkin spent a lifetime battling legal positivists who disparaged rights as an outdated natural law concept, cultural anthropologists who argued that universal values simply did not exist, or religious leaders who saw human rights as overly anthropocentric, or utilitarians who sought to sacrifice individual rights to the greater good. Henkin fought right-wing dictators and communists, ethno-nationalists, and of course, those who would invoke national security to trump human rights. All of these objections to the idea of human rights are reflected in the ambivalence or overt hostility to the human right of property. That right is criticized as being culturally insensitive, as based on a love for capitalism that is not shared by others. It is criticized as basis on an anthropologically or ideologically biased conception of natural law or for the flawed arguments for the social outcomes that property rights supposedly generate. Despite the treaties on my table, many continue to doubt even the existence of internationalized property rights as a matter of positive law. Thus, even the courts of one of the foremost defenders of property the United States, are hostile to the proposition that international law protects the rights of all persons to property. In a recent case involving a Venezuelan national who claimed that Venezuelans actions deprived him of his property, including of a newspaper that was critical of that government, the US court rejected contentions that a right to property for anyone other than an alien exists as a matter of customary law or general principles. It also rejected the contention that even if Venezuela was a party to the American Convention of Human Rights, which, as is indicated in my table, recognizes the right of property for the citizens of Venezuela, the court said that that convention to which the United States was not a party could not be considered, quote, international law, close quote. As this quote from the decision suggests, that court found that state takings of property owned by its own citizens could not be violations of international law. That decision by the United States 11th Circuit is not an anomaly. U.S. courts generally adhere to a rule that domestic takings do not violate international law. This stems from a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court given in 1937, long before the end of the Berlin Wall, and the many human rights instruments that are documented in my table. The court in Mezahein v. Venezuela Found not only that Venezuela's alleged violations did not violate international law, but astonishingly, that Lou Hankin's human rights revolution never happened. More than one US court has proclaimed, in no uncertain terms, that international law remains just that, between states, that it does not touch what a state does internally to its own citizens. In these cases, U.S. courts have suggested that Henkin was wrong. States have not, it turns out, been, been turned inside out. U.S. courts have only deigned to find takings of a state's own citizens illegal under international law where these takings involve genocidal seizures of property as during the Holocaust. As my table of instruments suggests, these judicial statements are surely wrong. But the fact that the courts of the nation that has historically been among the most protective of the right to property and its internationalization, that those courts remain hostile to it, except in rare cases when a domestic taking of property accompanies a genocide or when it is directed at a US national and the stolen property is located in the United States, that hostility tells us something about the adverse reaction, the human right of property usually generates. Of course, US courts judicially created exception for genocidal genocidal takings is as odd as their general statements that international law does not address so-called domestic takings, that is, a taking of a state's own citizen's property. None of the treaties on my list suggest that the right of, of property on behalf of nationals or aliens is conditioned on states deploying it as a tool of genocide. None suggest that the right of property is a right that is only violated when accompanied by a, quote, more serious human rights violation. Now, it's easy to understand why US courts resist taking jurisdiction over complaints against foreign governments that take the property of persons who have no connection with the United States. US judges don't want to turn their court into forums for foreigners to sue foreigners least of all, foreign states in U.S. courts. They do not want to license foreign courts also to second-guess U.S. government decisions or takings issued by the U.S. Supreme Court. But U.S. courts could dismiss such claims for many reasons. They could dismiss them for sovereign immunity or for lack of connection to the United States without misstating international law or undermining the age of rights. U.S. judges and scholars should avoid statements that suggest that international law does not impose duties on a state with respect to its own citizens, or that only genocidal domestic takings do so. No one, including U.S. courts, would dream of suggesting that there is a, quote, domestic torture, close quote, exception to the ban on torture, for example. The failure to take the human right of property seriously helps to explain the domestic taking exception in US law. The contention that international law does not protect citizens of kleptocracies draws considerable support, alas, across the left-right political spectrum in many countries. Left-leaning international lawyers are sympathetic to claims to land by indigenous peoples, but they are likely to see such cases as unique instances involving the, quote, self-determination rights, close quote, of a group seeking communal rights and not as proof that a general human right to private individual property may exist under international law. Some of the resistance to the internationalized right of property stems from fear that it impedes the realization of genuine or more important human rights. Today's liberal international lawyers point out that claims to property have a dark history. Theologians used the right to property to justify the slaughter and plunder of American Indians. Hugo Grotius, the so-called father of international law, used it to justify the Dutch East India Company's unilateral prerogatives on the high seas. 19th century international lawyers deployed it to defend gunboat diplomacy and military interventions in the global south. The right to property has privileged powerful and wealthy elites within states has been used to limit the right to vote, has perpetuated patriarchy, promoted inequality, and hampered efforts to redistribute income. Indeed, given the concentration of wealth in the world today, the right to property would appear to be a problem to be solved rather than a right that needs defending. It has been an imperialist cudgel to colonialize, has privileged only market states, and today is seen as underpinning wrong-headed privatization demands by the IMF, the right to property is also replete with conceptual and moral contradictions that give jurisprudence headaches. How can persons simultaneously be protected from government for a right that exists only because it is created by government? Why protect private property, a creature of society, from society and society's needs sometimes to take property for good reason? as for land reform. For some legal philosophers, the right to property simply does not derive from the human condition, but rather from the material fact that someone enjoys, even for illegitimate reasons, first possession. And why privilege a bundle of rights, including inheritance, that perpetuates the accumulation of wealth, and that only makes it harder, as Jesus suggested, for rich men and property holders have historically been male to get into heaven. Indeed, even defenders of, property, of private property, such as John Locke, argued that persons should not possess more property than they can use, or suggested, as did Rousseau, that the right to one's personal property does not include the right to make a profit from it. Many prominent scholars, as this quote from Rousseau indicates, have treated property as a form of theft, have called for its abolition seen it as a manifestation of pernicious, possessive individualism, or associated it with violence for the sake of dispossession. Critics argue that the right to property does not share with genuine human rights the trait of serving to connect people with one another. Encouraging people, like three-year-olds, to claim, that's mine, is hardly a promising way for people to relate to one another. Why protect a right that, as the Ten Commandments suggest in this famous uh, quote from Exodus, is largely defined by the right to exclude others from what is one's own? Why elevate the status of a concept that has justified slavery and that is still used around the world to subjugate women? And while we are on the subject of religion, let's remember that Christian theologians struggled mightily with the problem that man, not God, created the institution of private property. God's earth was created for the use and enjoyment of all. Why privilege a right that puts in effect this no trespassing sign on particular objects or pieces of land to the exclusion of others who may have a greater need? What moral justification exists for a right associated with several of the deadly sins, from avarice to gluttony? For those who turn to natural law in justification, what is the morality of a rule that is premised on the right to exclude. And even some of those who see good reasons to defend rights to property under national law see no reason to involve international law. Why shouldn't each nation be able to determine for itself when it is necessary to reallocate or to create common property? For example, to establish a national park or forms of communal property. If human rights are considered inalienable, how can a right that is in part defined by the right to alienate property be a right? Others think that the right to property is too deeply contested and capable of being abused for the wrong reasons to be subject to international rule. Indeed, when I told my progressive colleagues that I was using this UN platform, this audiovisual lecture, as an occasion to talk about the right of property, they suggested that I do it wearing a Darth Vader costume. Right-wing populists within many countries may agree with famous defenders of private property and capitalism, like Anne Rand and Friedrich Hayek, but may agree with the left that property decisions are for each sovereign state to make, not international lawyers or global elites. Now, many of the treaties on my list, from those emphasizing non-discrimination with respect to property for stateless persons, or refugees to those affirming property protections in wartime, or on behalf of foreign investors, are challenged as wrongheaded attempts to constrain sovereignty. Populist critics critics see these treaties as inconsistent with national goals, such as protecting the nation's borders from immigrants, from waging the most effective war against terrorists, or preventing the outsourcing of jobs. Treaties that protect property rights also draw fire at a time when other supranational efforts to second-guess decisions that are made at the national level, including by regional institutions, elicit Brexit-inspired scrutiny and skepticism. In the second part of this lecture, I will address how international law has responded to these powerful critiques of the human right of property.